<clears throat> so um, tonight I want to continue with the uh, the theme that I had started um, in the first two, three talks uh, on this seeing practice as a path of happiness and well-being, what I've called awakening joy. And uh, just as a little recap before we go into uh, tonight's exploration, <clears throat> that um, a few of these things have been said before by other teachers as well. Wise effort, guarding against unwholesome states, overcoming them when they're here, cultivating wholesome states, and maintaining and increasing them when they're, uh, they've arisen. <clears throat> and the most skillful way uh, to maintain and increase them is by really being present for them and letting them register both in your consciousness in your mind and in your body as well. <clears throat> Not by grasping, because any kind of grasping you've just turned into a turned it into an unwholesome state, but just being really present and letting yourself um, savor, if you will, in a non-attached way, just really appreciating this moment. Um, and that over time, if you keep inclining your mind in that way, uh, you become more and more tuned into all the goodness in life, which is uh, counter to what our usual habit is of noticing uh, what's wrong uh, or noticing uh, where we have to be vigilant because we're wired up to, to notice um, and to be on the lookout for what goes wrong. And it takes, some, takes more practice for most of us anyway to, to really tune into what's right and what's good and really let it uh, touch us. And uh, as I mentioned previously, there are uh, a number of wholesome states from the teachings that uh, have struck me as being particularly um, powerful to consciously cultivate and to be present for when they arise. And we've gone through five of them so far, whether or not you realize it. Uh, and uh, we'll do hopefully three, at least two, hopefully three tonight. And we'll have uh, the last two, um, one more talk on, on Sunday when I talk. Um, so we've talked about intention, the intention, not only to be mindful, but seeing it as a, um, as a inclining the mind towards true well-being that's right inside. <clears throat> Mindfulness as a basic tool of this approach of of noticing wholesome states when you're really present for them, they weaken the unwholesome states and, and mindfulness and strengthens the wholesome states. And when you're present for a wholesome state, it amplifies it. Gratitude, an open heart of appreciation. <clears throat> Opening to the difficult as a 
a direct path to opening the heart to everything so we're not uh, afraid of anything and we find a, a tenderness and a capacity and an inner strength uh, and courage um, and love that can hold it all. <clears throat> and we also touched on um, loving ourselves, being kind to ourselves. Mm. So tonight I wanted to uh, talk about uh, at least two, uh, as I said, or maybe three of these, uh, um, of the 10, and it'll be a, a continuation of some of the things that have been uh, spoken of already. Uh, the, the one that I wanna start off with tonight uh, Carol started spoke uh, a bit in her uh, in her talk the other night um, uh, towards the end of the talk, and that is uh, the power of integrity as a uh, as a not only a, as a foundation for well-being and as a um, a state or a um, an experience that one can open up to and really feel the joy of being aligned with our values. The, the Buddha spoke of, of this both in the Eightfold Path, wise, uh, our relationships, wise speech and action and livelihood. Uh, and we took those precepts at the beginning and we do every, uh, every week or so. Um, that he said, this is the foundation for well-being. And uh, here's one of his um, teachings. This is a kind of uh, paraphrasing or another, another way of sharing uh, what, what Carol read the other night from another translation of the Buddha's discourse. He says, for one who leads a virtuous life, it is a natural law that remorse will not arise. For one free of remorse, it is a natural law that gladness will arise. For one who is glad at heart, it is a natural law that joy will arise. He goes on to say, for one who experiences joy, there are all different stages of happiness and, and peace and a concentrated mind and, and awakening. But that's a, something, to, it, it makes such sense, doesn't it? For one who leads a virtuous life, it is a natural law that remorse will not arise. One free of remorse, it's a natural law that gladness will arise. One glad at heart, a natural law that joy will arise. So he's saying not to try to be some kind of a saint, but just for your own well-being, the more you're aligned with integrity and your values, the better it feels inside. And he, he had a, a, a name for, uh, for this feeling of well-being, uh, a phrase that I love called the bliss of blamelessness. He talked about the bliss of blamelessness. Doesn't that sound good? You know that feeling when you've got nothing to hide and nobody uh, can accuse you of, 
of anything. You just feel clean inside. Oh, it's such a, it's such an open and um, and free feeling, and it brings joy to the heart. And he has this. This is in one discourse. He says he talks about different kinds of happiness for anyone, lay people, whether or not they've meditated. It's a very practical discourse. He says, he talks about four different kinds of happiness. There's the happiness of being free of debt. Very practical. There's a happiness that comes when you are mm, prosperous enough that you can take care of those uh, close to you, your loved ones. Then there's the happiness that comes from being so fortunate and prosperous that you can be generous with others, even outside of your inner circle. And then there is this bliss of blamelessness, the fourth happiness. And he says, compared to the bliss of blamelessness, those first three are not one sixteenth as potent a source of well being. I don't know how he figured that out, <laughs> but that's what it says right in the discourse. Not one sixteenth as potent. Isn't that interesting? It makes such sense because you can be prosperous. We all know perhaps people, you don't have to think very far, who are prosperous, wealthy, and are they truly happy inside? Uh, it doesn't always. They, it doesn't always go together. So this is going for this bliss of blamelessness. Now, actually, reminds me. I'm going to share a passage. Yeah, this is from a um, a young man on his first retreat. Yeah, he was uh, 18 when um, when he sat this retreat, and he got in touch with just this idea. And it was a note that he wrote to himself that he was. I was fortunate enough that he shared it with me afterwards. And he says, "As I write, I'm channeling a revelation about the secret to long-term happiness." Here it is. The real secret to long-term happiness stems from knowing that one's actions are in impeccable alignment with the truth. When there is an ingrained knowing that you're doing your absolute humanly possible best to be generous, compassionate, and trying your hardest not to cause harm to any other being, that is it. He underlined it three times in capital letters. There is nothing that you can possibly blame yourself for, and there's nothing that anyone else can blame you for. Suddenly, an inconceivable weight is lifted from your shoulders. In essence, you are frictionless with the cycle of suffering. You don't need to be a Buddha to see this. This is an 18-year-old on his first retreat. We all know that feeling when we're clean, don't we? And Carol mentioned this the other night, but I wanted to explore and go in a little bit deeper with you about the different ways that we are planting seeds for either suffering or happiness uh, all the time. 
this teaching on the different ways our actions um, bear fruit. And there are four that I want to explore. There's actually five in the discourse, but uh, we'll just do four. Four ways that you sow seeds of suffering or happiness. In the moment of the action, the energy that comes back to you, the feeling as you recall, the recollection, and the likelihood that you repeat that action out of habit. So rather than this just being words, just uh, I invite you to go on a little journey with me. Go inside and we'll take two different scenarios. First scenario, if you close your eyes and think of a, of a time somewhere in your past where you acted less than skillful. You click that send button after you were activated or you said something or did something that, um, that was off. And if you can recall, remember how it felt in the action, or maybe not the moment, but the moment right after. How did it feel when you did something that you sensed might be a bit hurtful? There's one source probably didn't feel so good. What was the energy that came back to you from whoever was on the receiving end? Did they say, oh, thanks for the feedback? What comes back to you as you put it out, that energy? As you're thinking about it right now, how does it feel inside? Probably not so good. And the likelihood that you would repeat that is a bit greater because you practice that habit, unless you're mindful. So four ways, at least, that an, an unskillful action bears fruit. In the action, or just immediately after, the energy that comes back, as you recall it, and the habit that gets uh, reinforced. Okay, I won't leave you here. Take a nice breath. Clear the slate inside. And now, think of a really skillful action that you did. A random act of kindness. Maybe when you were there for a friend, or you didn't send the send button, click the send button, or you just took the high road, or any skillful action. And bring an image to mind as you do, as you recall the whole scenario. And as you do, remember how it felt in the moment that you were there for a friend or whatever the action was, how did it feel inside? 
what was the energy that came back to you from whoever was on the receiving end? As you recall it now, how does it feel, that sweet or lovely act of, of thoughtfulness and consideration? And the likelihood of that being repeated because you practice that habit. Notice how it feels inside. Okay, and if you like, you can open your eyes. You notice that? You see? The first time I heard that, it was like, I mean, not only did it make sense, but it was, oh, wow. I am planting seeds all the time. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, you want to plant as many good seeds as you can because they flower, bear fruit. So the Buddha said, act in alignment with your values, not causing harm, and if possible, being a, an agent of, of kindness. And you are laying the groundwork for a, a peaceful heart inside. And the thing is, we know, that's the, the interesting thing, we know when we're doing something that's a bit off. If we listen carefully enough, if we can slow down enough, isn't there a place that knows? You know that when you're, you're at this, this choice point, hmm, should I or shouldn't I? Click send. They deserve it. And we know, but often we don't pay attention and we just go on anyway. But if we can be mindful, we can listen inside and notice how it feels. And in the, in the uh, uh, Buddhist psychology, uh, there are two mental factors of the 52 mental factors that we supposedly are dealt, that's our, that's our deck, 52 mental factors. <clears throat> Hopefully you have a full deck. Um, there are two mental factors, wholesome factors, called hiri and otapam, which are translated in Victorian English often as moral shame and moral dread. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Those are wholesome mental factors where there's a place inside that senses, oh, this is a bit off, or you are wondering, oh, what will so and what will they think of me? People that I that I um, respect, if they find out, a sense of embarrassment or shame. You know, we have a name for it in English. What do we call that inside? Anyone? Conscience. Our conscience. Yeah, we're wired up for that. Imagine what it would be like if we weren't. It's pretty dicey as it is. But um, we have this compass inside 
that if we listen to, we know when we're off, but we often don't. So this is where mindfulness is so helpful because we can hear and feel inside, wait a second, where is this leading? And there's a a beautiful discourse that the Buddha uh, gave to his son, advice to Rahula, where he talks just about this. He says, if you're about to do an action, and his son was very young at the time, this is short uh, after he after he came back after being away for a number of for seven years, six years, and he came back. I think Rahula was seven or eight or so at the time. Um, and he said, "If you're about to do an action, just reflect. How? Where is this leading? Is this leading to suffering or is it leading to happiness? And if you can." sense where it's leading, if it's leading to suffering and you don't want to suffer, then don't go there. He says, but you might not realize until you're in the middle of the action or the the words. And he says, just stop there and get a sense, where is this leading? Is this leading to suffering or is it leading to happiness? And if you see it's leading to suffering, don't go there. And then he says, fortunately, you might not remember until after the words are spoken or the deed is done. And you can then look back and see, oh, how did this feel? What can I learn from this? He doesn't say, go ahead and beat yourself up. He says, have, I think it came out in one of the uh, morning Q and A's. Wise remorse, where you see what the result was of your action, and you commit to doing it differently in the future. You perhaps can make amends if that's possible, or at least confess or share what you've done with somebody that you respect, and just see what have I learned, so I don't have to do th- get into that this state of suffering in the future or cause, cause harm to others or plant those seeds. <clears throat> we mentioned it the other morning, you know, it, that we look back and it often happens that you replay your life on retreat. How many people have replayed past actions that they've done and, and uh, that's come up on, uh, on here on the retreat? <clears throat> It was a pretty safe question. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do looking at your mind for, your, for six weeks or three months? And there are things that you re- recollect often like, oh, gee, I can't believe I did that. And then there might be hopefully a few that you say, oh, that was pretty good. But when you replay those awful ones and you cringe, as I said the other day, cringing is a good sign it means you're no longer that same person and you've learned something. Not time to keep on laying it on yourself and, and, and blame yourself and just beat yourself up more. All that does is get more contracted and you want to punish yourself or confirm what a rotten person you are and go ahead and do something else that confirms that assessment. But when you have wise remorse and you see, oh, 
no, I don't need to do that anymore, then it's not wasted. We can change, but it takes, it takes forgiving ourselves and somehow committing to do it differently. We can be humbled by our, our past and then change. So I thought one thing that we could do as I'm on this topic is um, doing a little bit of healing from the past, if you'd be open to it. Like you to, if you feel like playing along, think of an incident that perhaps you regret or feel guilty about. <clears throat> that you're still somehow processing or somehow it's, it's not complete inside. And as you recall the situation, just notice if what was going on in your mind, the confusion perhaps, or the fear, or the, the uh, unconsciousness that led to your words or actions. Just notice what was happening inside. And as you tune into that, just imagine if you were with another person who had done that and was really um, confused and saw the error of their ways and uh, felt so bad inside, how would you feel towards them? Could you forgive them? forgive their confusion. And if you could now just imagine yourself as a wise, kind being that just understands the confusion and fear that led to your actions and just forgive yourself for the confusion for the unconsciousness. And just reflect on what you've learned from the situation. How might you act differently in similar situations in the future? And if you get in touch with that, just make a deliberate commitment to act in that way, a more skillful way in the future. Forgive yourself. It's important to come to some healing and closure. Otherwise you keep on carrying it around and no bunny benefits from that. Okay, if you'd like you can open your eyes.
I've had to take a look at lots of things in my life that I have beat myself up for in many years, in my earlier years. And somehow um, the secret is in self-compassion and forgiveness and just understanding your humanness. So this is where this bliss of blamelessness comes in because you know, we do blow it. So it's never too late. It's never too late. <clears throat> and that's why we take the precepts, the five precepts, or eight precepts, but five particularly, not causing harm because we are creating the conditions for our own well-being inside. And they keep us from acting a little bit more they help us act a little bit more consciously and put the brakes on just a little bit. But even if you've been doing this for many years, you're still going to make mistakes. To err is human, to forgive divine, as it said. And one thing that I find helpful is before the action to project ahead and see, a week from now, or six months from now, looking back, how am I gonna feel about this? Because it's so interesting, we're wired up that we can see on the front end just how good it's gonna feel, and we don't realize all the mind moments on the back end of cleaning up and what was I thinking. But if you project yourself in the, in the future, and you look back and you say, oh wow, it's not worth it. That's what, that's what I came away with my first retreat here in 1976 when, when people asked what I got from it. I said, you know, I'm just seeing it's not worth the ripples in my mind. That's how I put it at the time. It's not worth the ripples in my mind to cause harm. Um, so just try that toppling forward and the key, as far as awakening joy, here's just here's the here's the punctuation that I want you to get. Every time you choose the high road, notice how good it feels. It would be a shame if you just say, "Oh yeah, well that's how I'm supposed to be." Okay, I didn't mess up that time. You're missing out on something. You're missing out on experiencing the bliss of blamelessness. So to really let yourself feel how you're, you've grown and how good it feels inside to be aligned with your values. This is, um, this is awakening joy and well-being. <clears throat> I sometimes think of the, the spiritual path as learning the power of delayed gratification. Simple way to put it. You know, it's just not gonna be worth it. So, the bliss of blamelessness and being kind to yourself when you mess up. Next wholesome state which has been spoken of in a number of different ways, is um, what I call the joy of letting go. Nekama, 
renunciation, the joy of renunciation. Does that sound fun? The joy of renunciation, yes. But actually, it feels really good. The Buddha said, keep it simple. The happiest people you, I've met sometimes, or some of the happiest people just have a robes and a bowl and some food and some medicine you know, and, uh, and shelter, and that's it. So renunciation isn't so much sacrificing or doing without or being a martyr. It's really just discerning what you want from what you need. And there's no end to what you want. Have you noticed that? But what you need is really very simple. So this nekama renunciation, you might think of as simplicity. Doesn't simplicity sound good? There's a, a magazine in, in the States, um, maybe you've seen called Real Simple. It's a very popular magazine. It's about 250 pages of all the things that you will need to make your life simple. <laughs> Get this, this will make your life simple. Oh yeah, and this, and this. It's a very popular magazine because people just crave simplicity. I'll take that. But you don't need it. You don't need it. I, I don't think I did, it, did this here before. So I'm gonna, if I did, then pardon the redundancy. Did I do the gold shivers here? Oh, I did, okay then. You got it. You don't need the gold shivers, right? to just keep it simple. And there's a few different areas of letting go that I wanted to talk about. <clears throat> One is stuff, letting go of stuff. And this is, um, this is from P.A. Paiuto, who's a, a wonderful Buddhist scholar, um, about Matanuta, the principle of moderation. Did I mention this? I don't think I did here. He says, it's an awareness of that optimal point where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of endless desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to more satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. It's knowing when enough is enough. It's not saying be a martyr and do without, but just know when enough is enough. Mmm, that dessert was really good. Three helpings isn't going to do it. It's just going to give you indigestion. Although you might say, mm, it was so good, a little bit more. Yeah. Two helpings, okay. Three might be a bit much. But just knowing enough is enough and simplifying in that way. You know when you clean out your closet, how good it feels? Do you say, gee, maybe I'll, 
I'll, I, I'll wish I didn't give away that sweater that I haven't worn in eight years, you know. No, it's clear. Oh, it feels so good. So this is one area that I think it behooves all of us, particularly in the West, to simplify because um, we are way out of balance with consumption in this world. So that's one area, stuff. There's a, a great video, by the way, The Story of Stuff by Annie Leonard, if you ever uh, check it out, about we are, in a consum we are consumer units. You are a consumer unit to some people. How much, oh, actually, I'll, how much can you consume? This is from uh, Victor Lebeau, an economist uh, after World War II, talking about the consumer society. And he, he was saying, our enormously productive economy now demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. That's how our economy is run. They build in obsolesc obsolescence. Don't be a consumer unit. Be a human being that knows how to be satisfied with enough. So there's the letting go of stuff. There's another letting go in our intense, crazy world that uh, is equally as important, if I can find it here. Yeah. And that is the letting go of busyness, the letting go, the not getting into the disease, the FOMS disease, fear of missing something. And I wanted to share with you one of my favorite passages by my favorite writer, uh, whose name is Mark Morford. And this is called, Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. <clears throat> Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things? Little things? 
otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? (laughs) Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything, Meditation for most is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous. Avoid aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, said an article I read in The Atlantic, More data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. No longer is it possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and wave to the closed circuit TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts, Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. Mm. So letting go of cramming things in, the busyness of your schedule, of having to fill in more space. And here we are, isn't it amazing what we're doing? We're giving ourselves space. Doesn't it feel good to have space? We don't need to fill it up. There's a whole show that's happening all the time, right in front of our eyes, right inside our our being, right around us. And it takes some presence to appreciate it. So, to let go of that intense filling, 
Letting go of figuring out. I talked about this already. You don't have to figure it out. Letting go of expectations. What's gonna happen next? Letting go of needing to know. And just seeing what's here right now. And particularly letting go of the stories that we tell ourselves. You know, Sally's been giving that, those series of talks on the foundations, letting go of all the stories that the mind creates. And as soon as you see it's a story, there's freedom. Oh, what story am I believing now? That's my main instruction I give to myself. What story am I, when I really get caught, I just ask myself that question, or sometimes I'll say, what thought am I believing right now? And after you've taken a look at your mind all of these weeks, you start seeing, oh, the mind will make anything up. Why believe it? Oh, the moment you see it, that's a moment of freedom. And it doesn't matter how long you've been gone, where you've been lost, where you've gone to. It's just, oh, waking up from the dream. What story do you believe about yourself, about life, about others around that creates some pain and contraction inside? Let's just for a moment explore this. If you would go inside and just reflect what story, is there a story that you believe that keeps you from experiencing well-being and joy? A story about yourself, about your past, about how others perceive you, about how you perceive others. Just what story, is there a story that you believe that sometimes gets in the way of ease and well-being? And if you can get in touch with it, what would it be like if you saw it as just a story, saw through it and could let it go by seeing it's just a fabrication of mind. And what would you need to understand or remember in order to let it go in the future? What could you tell yourself? Is it really true? What if it weren't true? Opening to limitless possibilities.
You don't have to be a prisoner of the past or of your mind. The mind can get caught and it can be freed. All it takes is seeing through the stories that we create that frighten ourselves. And if you are getting in touch with some particular story right now, I really encourage these next few days to just, when it arises, see it as a story and feel the freedom that comes from seeing clearly. So, letting go of stuff, of busyness, of stories, letting go of the control that we never had, and the full flowering of letting go, the joy of letting go. Carol gave a beautiful talk the other, the other night on uh, generosity, the power of generosity that's letting go and also feeling that interconnection. It feels really good. Be there for it, like that line from the Buddha's discourse, thinking I'm, genera- I'm generous. One gains inspiration in the meaning and in the Dharma, in the truth. <clears throat> because generosity is kind of, it's the, the currency of our caring between each other. We feel connected through what we offer each other. You know, is there a, think of something in your, in your house that was a gift to you. you know, for me, there's, a, there's a, a cup in my bathroom. It's the last of four cups uh, that was given on my, our, uh, it was a wedding gift 35 years ago. And every time I drink that cup, or rinse my teeth after brushing my teeth, you know, oh, thank you, Roger. Thank you, Francis. Yeah. Isn't it so? <laughs> this thing, it's the, it's the connection that we experience between each other. When you're given a gift, you feel that connection. And when you give a gift also, a number of years, it was, um, might've been my second three month retreat. I had this experience about seeing, yeah, it was uh, 79, the, the power of, of generosity. I was um, assigned pot washing. I didn't sign up for it. I was assigned pot washing. And I felt very, I had a fair amount of self pity as I was doing, the pots, and oh, this is a lot. I'm, I'm always going to be late to my the, the afternoon sitting, and and feeling very sorry for myself. Out of the staff dining room, in those days, the staff dining room came right out onto the pot washing area, and they, and, uh, and the manager from the retreat uh, looked at me doing my work what he thought in a very diligent spirit of service. (laughs) He looked at me and he had uh, wrapped in this uh, foil 
something. And he leaned and he said, here, this is for your good work. I got really excited, finished the pots very quickly and dried off my hands. And then I opened up and there was this big piece of cheesecake with glaze and all kinds of things on it. It was like, you know, uh, uh, from another world. Right? <laughs> and at this point, having a, an, a slice of bread at tea was a big deal for me, right? I closed it, I opened it, yep, it's still there. <laughs> and you might have noticed that you're in your, um, as you practice, you just feel a bit more generous and besides, it was a big piece of cake. So what I did was broke it into a number of pieces and put it in um, some other fellow yogis' bowls. In those days, you had your own bowl and your own area. So that was your bowl. And I knew who, whose bowl was what. Again, there's not much else to do here, you know. That's Howie's bowl, that's her bowl, you know. So I broke it and I put it in three of my close yogi buddies' bowls and um, waiting at tea time for them to come in. And each one, you know, their eyes popped, you know. <laughs> one, my good buddy and colleague, Howie Cohn, who was sitting on the retreat, broke his piece and put it in someone else's bowl, broke it in half. I ate that piece of cake very mindfully. I can guarantee you I was there for every morsel, every crumb. It lasted about two minutes, maybe. But now 40 how many years later is it? 48 years later, I still feel connected to five other people through one piece of cake that's long gone. The manager, Jim, the three people I put it into, and that extra person. Isn't that amazing? So the generosity, it's really just the currency of our caring for each other. And as was said the other night, it feels so good to give and sometimes it's a little bit harder to receive. So for those who have a hard time receiving, just again to reiterate, your receiving is really an act of generosity because the power of a karmic exchange depends on the purity in the heart of the person giving, the purity of the gift, and the purity in the heart of the one receiving. So if you give a gift to someone, you ever have this experience, you give them a gift, and they say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You know, oh, no, oh, you shouldn't have. And you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have. You know? <laughs> It doesn't feel so good, right? Oh, no, you shouldn't. But if they say, oh, thank you so much, it kind of feels good. It completes the circuit. And in the same way, if you can receive graciously instead of, oh, you shouldn't have, 
oh, thank you so much. It's like you're taking in their love and you feel that connection. So the joy comes in the receiving if you can allow it as well as in the giving. So every time there's an act of generosity and exchange and that feeling of connection is there, don't miss it. Don't miss when a random act of kindness comes out of you and you just feel like sharing. Don't miss when every time you decide, oh, I don't need this, the the joy of simplicity. Oh, I can do without this. Don't miss whenever you go for uh, a kind of simplifying in your time and in your life instead of fear of missing something. Don't miss every time you can see through your stories and let go. Ah, yes, I'm seeing clearly. I see you, Mara. Oh, how wonderful. So just have time for these two tonight. Very simple. This is not stuff that you don't know. I'm just underscoring that these can be a real source of great joy and well-being for you whenever you're acting with integrity, the bliss of blamelessness, alignment with your values, notice how good it feels. And if you make a mistake, notice how good it feels to commit to doing it in a wiser way the next time. And letting go, let go, let go, you don't need to let go. You don't need to hold on. And uh, Bhante talked about Ajahn Sumedho's practice, letting go. And he, he said, uh, there's, uh, that can be your great practice. You don't need to read the suttas and have the majima, uh, the majima and, the, and take the Mahayana ordination and this ordination, that ordination, you know, and get invited to international Buddhist conferences. Uh, he says, for, for years, my practice was simply let go, let go, let go. He says, I'm sparing you a lot of, uh, of suffering because there's nothing more boring than getting invo- invited to international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Just let go and feel how, how light it feels. This is what the Buddha is talking about, the joy of simplicity of letting go. Every time you make that choice for yourself, just notice how good it feels. So, yeah. So I think that's all I have to say right now. So let's just take a few moments to be quiet. (laughs) 